Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? G'day. You are listening to episode 84 of the Howie Games Part A. The show, Lucky Us, is on tour at the moment. We come to you this week from Antigua in Guatemala. Do yourself a favour, come check it out. Just quickly, a lot of people have asked in the past if the show can appear on Spotify. Happy days, it now does, so you can check it out there. Alrighty, this week we are very fortunate to feature a lady considered by many to be Australia's greatest ever golfer, superstar Kari Webb. Look at this. And how about a birdie finish? Another back-to-back champion at Pine Needles, and in 2001 it is Kari Webb. Kari has seven major titles to her name, so far, so far, she's still playing, over 70 career wins and dominated the game in the early 2000s, and she's still teeing it up, albeit on a slightly reduced schedule. Not one to typically like talking about herself. In this episode, Kari explains how she went from a small North Queensland town to the top of the golfing world, and the effect it had on her, both positive and at times negative. There are a few tears, lots of laughs, and a fascinating look into the life of an athlete we don't know a great deal about, considering her standing in the game. Enjoy the story of the great woman, Kari Webb AO. So when you search, and then you find, and know just where to go, and thoughts that once used to cloud your mind, you see clearly and now you know, mystery, what is to be revealed in King Selassie I. Come on, children, try it with me. We want to reach Mount Zion. The great one, Kari Webb. <laughs> Welcome to the Howie Games. How are you? Thanks, Howie. No, I'm good. Glad to be on the show. Well, not only you're on the show, you're on the show in beautiful Barwon Heads because you're down here to play at 13th Beach, um, which is extraordinary for me because I normally get on a plane. But to just wander down my main street beautiful bone heads, a wonderful, nice part of the world, isn't it? It is beautiful, this time of the year especially. Yeah, nice golf course yeah. as well. I don't think in August I'd like to no, be No, no, not for a North Queensland <laughs> girl. I just want to say to you right off the top, and I said this to Elise Perry, we know each other a little bit from back in the day when 10 had golf coverage. Yeah. Same with Elise Perry, two of the most modest athletes I've ever met. But, Kari, you're going to have to talk about yourself for an hour now and I can't have false modesty. When you are good, you've got to admit that you are good. How hard is that for you? To admit? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't feel comfortable talking about myself, but um, I know what I've achieved and, you know, I guess the older I get, the more reflective I get. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, to think about where I grew up in Australia and to have achieved what I have, I think... Now, looking back on it, I, I marvel at some of the things that I've accomplished. Which is a nice way of looking at it. Yeah. And do you think this humility, and some people it's false humility with you, like I mentioned with Elise, it, it's not false humility. Is that a reflection of where you grew up? I think so. And I just think that, um, you know, at the end of the day, I play a sport for a living and, you know, I'm not curing cancer or anything like that. I You know, I'm very proud of what I've achieved, but, um, you know, I don't have to go around telling everyone about it. We're going to have to now. You're going to have to on this podcast. I'm going to get it right out of the way straight away. Statistically, the greatest golfer Australia has ever produced. In a lot of people's eyes, the greatest golfer Australia's ever produced. We're actually doing this on Thompson Street, Thompson yes, Drive, yeah. named after yeah, great Peter I, Thompson. I like staying in the street. Yes. Um, the debate seems to revolve around you, Peter and Greg, and Peter was quoted as saying, you're the best. So to me... That sits pretty well. How does it sit with you? Well, <laughs> Peter was um, 
such a lovely gentleman. Like he, you know, he had the greatest respect for the game of golf and the history of the, the game. Um, and I guess for me, just to be in the conversation with Peter and Greg is is an honour. Um, and for Peter to have said that, and he said that, you know, throughout most of my career before his passing, um, it was, you know, I'm, you know, very honoured that he would that he would think that. Um, but I think he, it just goes to show that he didn't um, necessarily, you know, rate men's golf, women's mm. golf. It, it was just golf. golf. Yeah. So when you walk into a room and they say, Curry Webb, and they list all your achievements, and then they say, Australia's best ever golfer, <laughs> do you go, ooh, or do you go, okay, I can roll with that? Uh, yeah, well, uh, we played the Pro-Am today and yep. they did that at lunch. And, <laughs> of course um, they did. Yeah, and, I mean... <laughs> I, you know, I don't tire of hearing it. It's mm. nice to to be reminded of of those things, and but I do feel uncomfortable a little bit. Um, you know, I never like to really draw attention to myself. So I must say as well, you look incredibly fit. Oh, thank you. You I do. You, you look fit. <laughs> you look as fit as I've ever seen you. Oh, really? Would that be a fair comment? Uh, um, no. Right. Yeah, I'm, I've probably. Been at my laziest in the last twelve months. So where is golf for you now? I, I know it's a <laughs> it's a reduced schedule, yeah. and it's not like it was in your crazy heyday. But where where is the relationship between you and golf now? Um, yeah, I, the last two years I um, cut back, just played nine events each year, um, and going forward, I don't know how many I'm going to play. Uh, this last I haven't played since the British Open last August, um, and I did that. The following the, the mm. year previous as well, um, but this second long layoff, um, I got very accustomed to not working hard and and grinding and practicing, and uh, it was really hard to get motivated to to do the work and you know in January and lead up to this. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't I don't know, um, you know how much, how many more tournaments I'll have left in me. I know that if I didn't have to do the work or if I didn't. If I was one of those players that could just show up on Thursday, I'd probably play forever because okay. the competing part isn't. I mean, it, it can be a little bit of brain damage sometimes competing at golf, but the actual competing part's what you live for. It's the grinding and the training and everything else that goes into it that after 25 years you mm. you wear down from. So when you were saying your last tournament, probably this was the British Open, when was that? Uh, beginning of August. Okay, so when you say you haven't been playing, does that mean for a period you don't even pick up a golf club or is golf still in the back of your mind or you're still at the yeah. range? What is not playing for um, you now? Well, I, so I haven't put a pencil on a scorecard since then. Okay, but um, what about? And I've probably played, oh, maybe now I'm probably up to about 12, 12 15 rounds of 18 holes okay. since then. Right. And so when you <laughs> so come. So not, not tons. When you come back to it for the first time, you say, well, gee, I'm, I'm going to go and play golf again. Yeah. When you get on the tee for the first couple of holes after that extended period, which is extended when you look back yeah. at your 25 years, yeah. if you at your best is after four tournaments, for want of a better right. number, where are you when you're on the tee back again percentage-wise? Like how much does someone that's played so much golf like you drop off? Yeah, well, I think that's that's sort of where I'm at now because so I played part-time and the first year I played nine events, so 2018, I'd just come off, you know, 20-plus years of playing full schedule. So I think I did fairly well that 
year and I thought for playing my first year as part-time so I actually thought next, last year would be better but I think what it showed was um, the lack of mental sharpness. Okay. So it's not to say that I couldn't rock up starting tomorrow and win. Like I could but the stars would have to align and a lot of good things would have to happen but that could, you know, I still am capable of doing that but, you know, it's different playing with your mates. Like I played pretty decently in the Pro-Am today, but it's different when it's a relaxed atmosphere versus, you know, mm. the gun goes off and, and it's for real. Um, and I just noticed, you know, of the nine events I played last year, four were majors, and that's when you have to be really mentally sharp. And I just made silly decisions. Like my decision-making under pressure wasn't good. And those are the things you don't have to mm. make when you're playing 18 holes with your mates, you know. So when you talk about the mental side of golf and you made my week by saying you've listened to some episodes because Stacey put you onto the podcast. Yes. So, so much of the podcast. Stace will be happy there. She will. Hello to Stace. Yeah. Hello to Stace because she didn't know you were coming on. You kept it up your sleeve and yes. she's going to see it pop in the feed. That's right. Which is very, very nice. Um, she's been a long-term supporter of the show, which is very nice of her. We often talk about the mental versus the physical aspect and last episode Mike Hussey was like, to bat for Australia, so much of it is mental. For you, when you're right in it, how much of the game of golf after so much physical practice becomes mental to get you to where you need to be? Yeah, I read somewhere recently someone described <clears throat> golf, when you're first learning to play golf, 90% of it is physical. Mm. And then once you've learned enough of that, then it's 90% men mental. So right. and you feel once you have you the are? skills, yeah, like I think once you have the skills, it all, all comes down to because um, even in, in the height of my career, I might not have felt 100% physically ready, like something I might not have been hitting it well or, you know, my putting was off, but I just had that mental edge that when I walked, so my practice and everything leading up to an event would be terrible and I'd go to the tee really with not high expectations. But mm. as soon as I walked through onto that first tee, it was just like a different version of me came out. And mentally, it was like I needed that mental challenge. So I rose to those mental occasions where when you're not, when you're not putting yourself in those positions a lot, it's hard to get back to, so, to that. So that, that mental strength, mental confidence, did that come from years of success or years of practice or a studied mental approach, how do you get yourself into that mindset and how long does it take before you can step up there and go, geez, I've shanked them on the driving range but now I'm ready to <laughs> yeah. go? Um, I, I think most of it was natural. I never worked with a sports psychologist through the best part of my career. Um, the years uh, 99, 2000, um, 2001 when I was I won six of my – well five of my seven majors um, through those three years. Um, only one of those tournaments did I feel before, like in the lead up that I had, that I was going to contend to win. <laughs> if I just based everything on my preparation. Right, on your physical preparation. Yeah, yeah. Right. And just something, it was almost like I just couldn't get up for practice. Like I just mentally couldn't get my head into it. And as soon as I walked through the gates on the first tee, it just changed. Do you feel? Do you, like? Do you feel? I don't think I felt it, but it happened. It just happened. Yeah. Okay. So where did it all start for you? 
Gutty Webb, when we used to do the golf, we'd be sitting in the production truck and be always here comes Gutty Webb. And I can remember we'd shout it out, the producer, the director, so I was half me not, the kids were saying to me, why do you call it Gutty Webb all the time? Um, start a few in North Queensland. Yeah. Um, we're about the same age. So when women's sport was nowhere near as prevalent as it is today, but how did you get introduced to the game of golf? It's a tiny little place. Yeah, Air in North Queensland. How many um, people live in Air or the, did when you were eight, growing up? Uh, still about the same, I think, about 8,500. Are you the greatest result ever to come out of Air? Uh, we've, uh, well, probably, but um, we've had um, a few Olympians okay. and, yeah, like for such a small town, we've had um, quite a bit of sporting success. Queensland's good at sport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And growing up, we, just, I think in a small town, we we had great sporting facilities. So, you know, back then too, there wasn't Netflix and, you know, mm. Playstations and stuff. Like you went and played sport. Um, but f- for me with golf, um Right around the time I was born, my parents and my grandparents, my mum's parents, um, took up the game and I was the oldest. And they just took the game up for something to do or they yeah, always played it? something to do. Oh, right. um, I think it was mainly because my grandparents' store they owned, um, the store owner next to them, um, they were members at the club. Oh, and my well. mum, so this is a small town, but Calvin Haller who coached me. Of course. It was his parents that owned um, <gasps> the um, store, the news agency next uh, what door. What was your grandparents' shop? Uh, they had a toy shop and a gift shop. How good were the grandparents when yeah. you grew up yeah, right? toy shop? Oh, yeah, yeah. We worked, we worked there every school holidays. <laughs> right. I loved it, yeah. Right. So they, they introduced you to golf and then when do they take Kari along for a while? Yeah, so, um, well, as young as four, my grandparents, so they had two businesses, they worked six days a week. So Sunday was their only day off and they'd pick me up at seven in the morning on a Sunday when I was four and take me up and play nine holes. And I just had plastic, you know, that you don't have the equipment that they did then. It was just the toy plastic set with the plastic ball. Um, and I'd go around with them and I couldn't walk nine holes. So my granddad would put me on his trolley with his bag and pull me around. Huh. But, yeah, I did that all the way up until I was eight and as I was getting a little bit older, I was too strong for the clubs and, you know, the head would fly further than the, the ball. And <laughs> the get, plastic club. Yeah, <laughs> and I'd get frustrated. So my grandparents promised um, me for my eighth birthday that get me a real set of clubs. So um, that's officially, that? yeah, I've, I've, we've, we're fortunate, um, you know, as you, you don't realise that the clubs I'm going to use might, no. someday you might want. So, you know, once I grew out of them, we gave them to another junior um, and then they gave them to another junior. And anyway, um, a guy in town um, a few years into my career said, I think I have some Akari's first set. Yeah. <laughs> and so he gave them back to me. So I've got, I think, three of the five or four of the five wow, clubs. Good on that, fella. So the yeah. cricketers could always say, well, you know, I got my first and it was a grey nickels or it was a yeah. super tusker. What were the clubs? Yeah, so... Um, just recent, well, and recently, I say in the last few years, I've looked at them again because I want to put them on display. Mm. Um, and they're Peter Thompson oh, irons. Man. The irons are Peter Thompson <laughs> irons. So I, I thought that, and, you know, I'd already sort of had a good friendship with Peter, so I just thought that, you know, yeah. I didn't realise that at the time until I looked at them. So what was it about golf? Because it's not a it's not a typical game, be fair to say. A lot more now, but it's not like, and we'll get to, to magazine and you're not, you're not watching girls play golf on TV in the, what are we talking, late 70s. No, so, well, there wasn't golf, women's golf on TV 
I never saw a woman play golf on TV until um, they had the Australian Ladies Masters at Palmetto's <laughs> in 1990, I think, was the first year. So at that stage you so were I was, 15. Yeah, I was already. So why? Why then golf? What was it? Can you take yourself back to young Kari as to what hooked you? Was it yeah. spending well, time with your grandparents or well, it must have been something about the game eventually? Yeah, I think early on um, it was a young club. So my parents were members and there was a lot of, people around my parents' age with young kids. So it was more just the atmosphere to start with. So mum and dad would play on a Saturday. My grandparents would look after us in the afternoon and then they'd drop us out at about five o'clock and mum and dad would be having a drink in the clubhouse and all the kids would be downstairs just running amok, you know. Hmm. Um, But we just had fun out there. So then when I wasn't allowed to play juniors until I was eight. So by then I really wanted to play. Um, And I, I played a bunch of other sports, but... Um, I think it was the individual aspect of golf that I eventually got hooked on, just that, you know, I could go and hit balls. I didn't need anyone. And a small town too, we lived just around five-minute walk from the golf course. So Would you be going to hit balls at age eight? Not at eight, but um, not long after that, probably okay. once a week because I started getting lessons from Calvin. So probably once a week he'd give me a lesson. What other sports? Um. Oh, everything in primary school, um, netball, hockey, um, like just representing uh, the primary school. So netball, hockey, um, uh, well, I played cricket with the boys in um, in the schoolyard, but, you know, girls weren't allowed to play cricket. So I, uh, my best friend at primary school's parents owned an indoor cricket centre, so I played indoor cricket. Um, you know, soccer. You loved cricket. Softball though. was another softball. one. Yeah, softball. You, you did love cricket though, from all reports. Oh yeah, I loved love cricket. Yeah. Do, um, do you look at it now? Um, oh God, it would have been whenever the event is in. I think it was in South Australia. I think it might have been the Test match in Canberra last January, so a bit over a year ago. Um, and I was lucky enough to be having a chat with Alyssa Healy just socially. And she's like, oh, three days' time I'm going to, I think it was South Australia, I'm going to play golf with Curry Webb. And she was absolutely beside herself. I presume that happened. <laughs> yeah, it did. And, l- and I played with her today as well. Oh, did you? And oh, Mitch, she hit today. Mitch, yeah. Oh, Starkey was here today yeah, as well. Yeah. Right. Do you look at it now, like the progression, we're chopping around a bit here, but the progression, oh, I've got a 10-year-old daughter, the yeah. opportunities for them to be exposed and impressed and swayed with all sorts of sports now is like if you look back at Kari Webb, Kari Webb's definitely not watching girls play cricket on TV. Yeah, no, definitely. So um, right around the time that I told my parents, I was 11 when I told my parents I wanted to be a professional golfer. Right. I also said, or or I want to play cricket for Australia. <laughs> <laughs> but even though... Women's golf wasn't visible. I knew that it existed. You know, I knew that women were playing professional golf tournaments. Um, I didn't know that there was even such a thing as Australian women's cricket team. Like, even though that it was, it was never written about or talked about or anything. So um, I just think if I was 11 now with the exposure that little girls have with all these women playing all these different sports, I don't know what direction I would have gone in. Do you feel proud that you've been an integral part of that revolution? Golf Australia put out that beautiful video, which I'll play at some point here in the podcast when we're talking about it, about the way the young golfers looked up to you and so many of them got into the game of golf because of you. Yeah. 
How does that make you feel when you hear that, apart from old? Yeah, it does make me feel old. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can only say that because I reckon we're about the same age, so we're in the same boat. Yeah, but, um, yeah, no, I mean, I'm glad I'm glad for that. Um, I sometimes ha- hoped that it would be more because um, I, I feel like, you know, we're only, you know, seeing the Hannah Greens and the Minji Lees now sort of take over, um, and I'm glad there's a, at least a couple of them. Um, mm. But, you know, I, I'd love to see the depth that the men have in Australia. I think for such a small country have done pretty well um, on the world stage. So I, w- I want that to carry over to, to the women's side. And and I think Golf Australia really, you know, now realise that they have to focus on growing the game um, for, for kids, but girls and, and women. Um, and And we need to keep up with... Cricket Australia and the AFL um, with their programs because we'll lose mm. the kids that might play both, perhaps. Oh, I'm going to get myself into trouble here, but I'm going to say it to you anyway, and you can answer this as any way you can, and we'll get back to Queensland and where you were. But I, I used to find working on golf tournaments and even as a 23-year-old, 24-year-old of uni, you want to go and have a hit of golf, and I found it an incredibly restrictive sport, what you had to wear, mm. the approach, the attitude. You had yep. to know someone to join a club. Are we getting better at getting kids to golf courses? I hope so. I mean, that's part of... Is that of, a fair comment? No, it's perfect because, you know, so I, if we go back to where I grew up, I never had, I never experienced golf like that. Mm. So we're a country club. You need as many people out there as you can. So the kids can run them up. And, yeah, and I could play any day of the week. Um, you know, I just, if there was a club competition on, but men and women both playing on Saturdays, which is novel in the cities, Mm, mm. Um, you know, as long as it wasn't then, that was probably the only time of the week that I I couldn't be on the golf course, but I could be on the practice facilities. So, um, and no one ever told me to how to dress or, you know, I knew I hadn't had my shorts at a certain length, but no one ever picked me on it or any of the clubs in North Queensland. It wasn't until I started travelling away and going to Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne um, where at one club I had to, they thought my shorts were too short so I had to get on my knees and they measured from the floor to my hem and I was, I think it was like five millimetres short, too short, so I had to unpick the hem of my shorts and play. So golf definitely has come further than that but... You know, still even like, you know, I've lived in the US for a long time and you can wear a hat just about any place. Um, and so I get into a habit of walking into the clubhouse with my hat on, but you can't still in Australia, you've got to take your hat off. And I'm like, those are the sort of things like kids don't want to be told to tuck their shirt in. I hate it. You know, um, and, and then even for young girls playing golf, if you watch the LPGA players in the fashion that they're wearing, they're not allowed to wear it at some of the clubs. Like, it just should be allowed, you know. Um, and we've got to relax those sort of things. And I think, you know, as older generations pass on, I think it'll it'll catch up. Yeah, I think it's probably as we get more youthful administrators. But, like, yeah. you, like a lot of if, – if they hadn't already stated the fact they wanted to play professional golf, most kids, if they had to kneel down and get their shorts adjusted, their go stuff this game, I'm going to go and play yeah. netball. Yeah. Or, or whatever it may be. Yeah. I, I had a, a few roadblocks, I think. Um, I don't think I ever viewed them as roadblocks. Um, 
coming from the country and, and North Queensland. I mean, we're in Bar- Barwon Heads and it's probably considered the country here, but you're mm. an hour and a half from the city. Um, you know, growing up where I did, I did... I did face challenges, but I every time I did, I think I just said, well, I'll show you, you know. So it sort of spurred me on to dig my heels in and, and prove them wrong. So at that stage when you said to your parents, I want to be a professional golfer, like at what stage did you realise, and this is, as I said, that conversation back at the start, this is no time for modesty, at what stage did you realise that you were better at golf than everyone your own age? Oh, I don't... I. I sort of progressed really well through the age groups and then I, you know, probably around 13 started playing in adult competitions like club opens and state opens and stuff. And What was the first thing you won non-professionally? What was it be the first golf tournament you won? Um, well, I know what my first trophy was but that was actually for... Um, it was the encouragement award, so for coming last. But I didn't know that. At eight, I just got a trophy. <laughs> so, That's what I used to get at my cricket club. So, well, yeah, so team, team it's, award. it's the encouragement award yeah. or the Bradman award. Right. So, um, so a slowish start, but as an eight-year-old. Yeah, eight, it was my first 18 holes. Oh. Well, well, two days, so two 18 holes that I'd ever played. What would you have shot, do you reckon? I, first day was 156. 156. That's your first full 18 holes in a comp. Yeah. 156. Jeez, I'm glad you got better. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, you are only eight, though. I was only eight. Um, and you think about the clubs that you used back then, like they yeah. were just, you know, big big clubs cut down, so heavy and stiff. And Still, yeah. I hate to say it, 156 yeah. is a pretty big number. But I got a tro- I drove home with a trophy. Proudest and, punch. Yeah, and like that's all I needed. So when did you start winning? Uh, not long after that age, like age, um, girls age group stuff. Um, and then by the time I started high school, I wasn't, Long, I was winning the club championships and stuff like that. And the, the senior club championships? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And when you said to your mum and dad, because this is a frequent theme in this show, it's really hard when your daughter or your son says, you know, I want to play cricket for Australia or I want to go to the Olympics. It's like you want to encourage them. I don't know how much of a dose of realism you need to give a child at that age. Yeah. How did your parents approach it when their daughter said, well, this is what I want to do? They... They never once have they had they ever said um, that you know that might not happen just in case. So, so no- my deal through high school. So <laughs> I started you know missing quite a bit of school then because I I was going to play state amateurs and and yep. stuff representing Queensland and and then Australia. Their my deal with them was that I had to keep getting good grades, um, but it was never. You have to get good grades just in case you can't be. It was just you still have That's to what get you have to do. good grades. Um, and my mum remembers this more than me, um, but she remembers me being asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And uh, me saying I want to be a professional golfer and adults laughing. And then mum said, then they'd talk to mum and dad and say, you're going to have to like talk her out of that. Don't get her hopes up that she could do that. Mm. You know, and mum and dad never, they were just, they supported me 100%, but they were never either, they weren't the parents that were like, you need to go and practice tomorrow um, or, you know, how did you shoot 82 today? Like they weren't like that either. So um, they were just they were super supportive and, you know, they weren't, they 
weren't financially secure enough to just go, yeah, we'll pay for this and that, but they they did, you know. Um, it wasn't until, you know, it's not until you start making your own money that you realise how much your parents have done for you. My word. And all the kids that are listening, your parents are doing <laughs> something now. They're probably driving you to golf or cricket or tennis. Um, your long-term friend and manager, Tony, I spoke to him yesterday. Yeah. He told me a story that I don't want to tell, I want you to tell <laughs> because it, it really touched me talking about your parents what do they currently do now? Oh, uh, we, so my dad was a builder his whole life, but, you know, had his own company, but did the physical building. And um, so he said to me, you know, when I'm 50, I just don't, in North Queensland summers, I just don't think I can continue doing the physical side of it. And he said, I'd like to get out. Um, and he said, would you help me go into something else? And I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. So it was his idea. Um, Air didn't have a movie theatre um, and he found, um, well, there was a, um, a building up for auction, which um, at the time when we bought it was a nightclub and two storefronts. Um, but it used to be back in the 40s and 50s, used to be the movie theatre in town. So Dad's last construction project was to redevelop that back into two screen cinema. And so we opened that in two thousand. So this it's twenty years this year that we've So was it an auction? It. it was an auction. Where were you? I was in the States on the phone. Bidding. No, my dad was bidding. Right. If I'd have bidded, we would have gotten it for much less. <laughs> <laughs> so so you helped with and when you talked about the things you, your parents do for you, and that's why it touched me what Tony was talking about, the fact that you'd then for their had helped your parents go on in the next stage of their life, which I think is a yeah. really beautiful thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. And you're getting uncomfortable talking about it, but I'm going to ask you one more question about it anyway. <laughs> Apparently there was a song and dance that there should be a display about you at the front of the cinema mm. and early doors <laughs> you just knocked yeah, it right I didn't, on the I head. didn't win that argument though. <laughs> no, eventually yeah, they yeah. got the display up. Yeah. Well, I, I was torn because it was like a memorial of me, or not a memorial, but a you know, display or museum in my parents' house, which I have two other sisters and people would comment because there'd be all these pictures of me and then they'd have like a couple of pictures of my sisters when they were kids and doing the sport and the dancing and stuff that they did. So I was glad that that was going out of the house, but then they were putting it in the cinema and I was like, I don't want that in the cinema, <laughs> but it's there. So I, lo I lost that argument. So when people are up in North Queensland, where do they have to go to the movies and to see the uh, museum, for want of a better term? <laughs> um, it's in the main street of air. You okay. can't miss it. What's it called? Uh, Burdick and Delta Cinemas. Right. Tell them you listen to Harry Games, you might get 50 cents off a ticket. Yeah. Okay, give it a go. <laughs> Back to Kari in a moment. The next guest on the show, dropping on Thursday, March 5. Well, he's one out of the box, this bloke. His name is Garrett McNamara, and he has surfed some of the biggest waves ever tackled and had an extraordinary, extraordinary upbringing. This is one for all you cool cats out there that like the occasional walk on the very, very wild side. So what did you think when you got there to Nazareth? got there, it was like... The holy grail. I got out of the car and it was the wind was blowing really strong and I could barely open the door. And I look out and see the biggest waves I've ever seen. It was a massive. The winds weren't ideal and they were too strong, 
but they were going side shore, so it was holding up the waves so you could see the height. And it was the biggest, it was like the Holy Grail right there, first day. This is wave in that town <clears throat> over centuries has caused misery, I guess, for want of a better term. It was the place of death. That's all they know. And when they saw this American guy going out there, they they didn't want to know me from what I found out a couple of years ago because they didn't want to know the guy who wasn't going to be here anymore. You were going to be and another really, person that was lost to the way. They were really, you know, passionate and loving people and they didn't want to be connected and then see me disappear. That's Garrett McNamara coming up on Thursday, March 5. Alrighty, back to Kari. So eventually um, you get down towards Brisbane. Uh, saw your first proper golf tournament? Yeah, so that was when I was 11. Yeah, I went. Um, so my grandparents, so my birthday is right before Christmas and um, my mother, because I was born close to Christmas, she's like, we're not just having one present for her. She needs to be able to have a birthday and Christmas. So that was her rule when I was born. But when this opportunity came up, my grandparents said, can we just do one present this year? Um, and Greg Norman um, had, it was in 1986, and Greg had just won um, the British Open and was number one in the world, and he was coming home to play in the Queensland Open. Uh, and it was at Coolangatta Tweed, and my mum's sister, my aunt, lives down there. So my grandparents paid for me to fly down um, and and go and watch. That was my first ever professional golf tournament. And that's when I came home and said I wanted to be a professional golfer. I just love the whole atmosphere of, you know, show it, you know, playing your sport at the highest level in front of people watching. And you saw the great man in action? Yeah, yeah. I got a photo with him and yeah, it was it was awesome. You still got the photo or not? I do. Really? Yeah. yeah. Well, a photo of me kneeling in between the crowd and him and <laughs> him and the put, practice putting green. And I have a picture that I got taken with him. I'm very lucky that he's been on this show and had the pleasure of meeting him and interviewing him various times at golf tournaments. Um, lovely man, but on first meeting, one of the most imposing people I reckon I've ever met. He's that type of bloke that when he walks in the room and if you've got your back turned, you know he's there. Isn't yeah. He? He's a huge figure of it. Yeah, he is. He's he's but but as a result of that, and then, then you had some success. Did you go? Did you go over to and stay at his place? Yeah, so um, that was ninety uh, two. So ninety one was the first year of the Greg Norman Junior Golf Foundation, mm-hmm. um, and you know you had to win one of the state events to go to the uh, final event, the Greg Norman Junior Masters, and. Uh, that was held at Sanctuary Cove and that was the first year of that. And Greg, the prize for the overall girls winner and boys winner was a trip, paid trip to Florida to stay at his house for a week. So, um, it's a fair prize. Yes, it was. And that, you know, I, I was the overall girls winner. So the following year was when um, we got to go over, which was just amazing, you know, that someone that you looked up to mm. and that was your hero, I, I I landed late at night and his brother-in-law picked me up and so I didn't see Greg and they, you know, I had my own guest house on this property. <laughs> One of the wings. Yeah. <laughs> and um, next morning at like 8 o'clock in the morning there was a knock on the door and he comes in and I meet officially meet Greg Norman in my pyjamas. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, but it was such a so great. Did you, did you practice to it together? Yeah. Or? So wow, what an experience. Yeah, Caro. it was like he just. It, we were just a part of his family that week. Um, so he took us. We played golf. Um, you know, he he gave us as much many golf balls and golf shoes and everything that you know you could imagine. Um, yeah, so we played golf with him a couple of times. Uh, he had um, he was the touring professional for a golf course in Orlando. So we went up there for the weekend, um, and he had to do an outing or whatever. And then we went to Universal Studios <laughs> the next day, which we were VIPs, and it probably ruined me for going to those <laughs> parks because right in front of the queue. Yeah, like and the best seat on the ride and, you know, <laughs> we did the whole park in about three hours, right. you know, so, um, but, you know, it just was just the whole experience, you know, back at his house, you know, took you into his Ferrari room and, you know, it just, I it was. I presume the Ferrari room is full of Ferraris? Yeah, there, there was probably eight Ferraris <laughs> oh, all on, on all on blocks in, in this one room. Wow. So, yeah, so it was just, you know. It it just made me not that I I thought that I was going to to be that successful, but you know to aspire to play golf well enough that that's all I have to do for my whole life is play golf. Um, and and that sort of inspired me to then go on to the Kari Web series and sort of give back to the girls the same way that Greg gave to me. Which has been tremendously successful. Yeah, it, yeah, it has. So what's I mean, it like when you see young girls go through I think every girl it? that's come through has at least turned pro. So, wow. Yeah. So how do you feel? Well, you end up playing against them. It's like yeah. I trained well, you up here. I'm losing to And them. now you're beating me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a full circle. <laughs> yes. You should be tremendously, tremendously proud. Mm. Um, so like every Australian sport athlete in a international sport, you've got to go overseas. So did you go to Europe first? I did. I played one year in Europe. So, um, so how does a young lady fund that type of operation? So um, I turned pro at the end of 94 with about, I think I had $200 in the bank. I had to actually borrow money from my parents to pay my joining, my joining fee to the ALPG. Right. Was it a difficult choice to go pro or in your mind it was the way to go? It, well, it was even more of in, a distinction then. Yeah, so even in my own plan it was probably a year, at least a year early, but I sort of dominated um, amateur golf, especially that year of 94. Um, and no, at that stage that it was the ALGU, it wasn't Golf Australia. Um, they weren't sending us overseas to play in British AMs and USAMs and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I just felt like if I stayed in Australia another year, I felt like I would have been, you know, treading water rather than getting better. What did they say when you said I'm going to go pro? Yeah, they said that I wasn't ready. Yeah. Just one more person to stick it up, eh? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so then I turned pro and... Um, with the 200 Australia, bucks? With 200 bucks. So my grandparents and my parents lent me some money um, to just to get to these two events. Um, and I played the Australian Open at Royal Adelaide in the end of 94. So is that your first professional event? As a pro. I'd right. played in professional yep. events as an amateur but as a pro. Made my first check that week. Which was? Um, actually, I don't know how much it was. I finished like 35th or right. something. So, so it you wasn't, made the cut. You made yeah, the weekend. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know, it might have been like $1,600 or $1,800. And can you put yourself back there and you've played um, amateur at, at that level. Yeah. But 
we'll get to the fact that early days you can't really tell me a story of what it's like not to win because let's be honest you had tremendous success right from the start yeah. but but when you're teeing up at that stage in your first few professional events are you I've got this or I'm out of my depth uh I don't think I thought I was out of my depth but I don't think I I don't think I knew where I I was I'd done pretty well in some professional events as an amateur so I sort of thought I'd go okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but then so I played the Australian Open and then the Australian Masters was the next week at Royal Pines. Um, and I ended up finishing second to Laura Davies and making $25,000, which I thought I was a millionaire. Holy moly. I, I literally thought I was a millionaire. I think I went to the ATM a million times just to check my bank balance. <laughs> you need a couple of those Ferraris yeah. at Greek It's just 24000 <laughs> So you just kept going yeah, back to check yeah. it. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> Um, uh. And because it was December when I won won that money, um, my parent, you know, everyone got great Christmas presents, which my parents weren't happy that I was spending that money. But that that and selling my car. Um, what was a car? A Nissan Pulsar. What did you get for the Pulsar? With no air conditioning in North Queensland. What, what did you get for that? Uh, maybe three or four thousand. Did you tell them it had no air conditioning? Yes, I bought. I sold it back to the guy. I think I might have actually gotten more because um, <laughs> I sold it back to the guy I bought it from, like the right. secondhand car salesman. But he was a member at the club I was working okay. at, so I think he didn't. She's a steamy ride. Did me a favour. No aircon. <laughs> yes, it was. Um, but anyway, so I probably headed to Europe with about twenty thousand, maybe a little over twenty thousand in my bank account, and. Fortunately, I was very naive with money and thought that even if I missed every cut for the year, that 20000 would get me around. In Europe? Yeah, <laughs> which wouldn't have, but no. at least I believed that. Yes. And so I never, I never worried about money. And so I went to European Q School, got my card, and then there was a couple of month gap before the tour started. So I went to the States and played mini tour stuff over there um, and won an event over there. So... That we weren't playing for much money, but I probably broke even through that stage and didn't lose any money. Um, but then started in Europe and started playing really well, like lots of top tens and got to the British Open, which was in August, and stood on the 72nd tee with a five-shot lead. Huh. So, um, yeah, I backed off that tee shot about three times <laughs> because my sight line was the British Open trophy on a, on a board. And I was like, I'm going to win the British Open. Like just, you know, that, at 20 years old, like that wasn't definitely wasn't in the plan to begin with. So since then um, I've never, I've never, uh, the one thing I can't advise young players on is, you know, when they need to make a cut to keep their card no. or, um, you know, make a cut to pay their bills. Um, I fortunately golf has been that good to me that I haven't, ever had to, to do that. So when you hold a winning putt to win your first professional tournament and British Open's not a bad way to start yeah. things and they present you the trophy, as a 20-year-old, what does this mean? Like, What does it mean to you? Well, I mean, it it was the British Open. I looked up to Greg, Greg Norman. Um, he'd won the British Open. Ian Baker Finch won the British Open. So, like, I just, I, I really, I, qu- I couldn't quite believe it. Um, and it didn't really... Apart from financially, it didn't really set me up for the next year. I still had to go to, um, but it, I still had to go to LPGA qualifying school at the end of the year. Um, 
but it, it gave me confidence to get through that um, and, that, and that I was ready to go to the States. Like, um, you know, normally you're in Europe for a few years before you feel like you mm. can take that next step. So everything sort of was fast-tracked after that. So just before we get to America, so in those early days in Europe, before you won the British Open, no one knows who you are, which I would have thought looking back was probably a wonderful time for you being under the radar. Yeah. Uh, so are you travelling with a group? Like are you sharing a room? Like did you go out for dinner? Like what's life like as an unknown at that stage? In What year are we talking now? 90? That was 95. Okay. So the mid-90s on the on the Women's European Golf Tour, what's life like? Uh, it, it was great because... You know, we weren't playing for tons of money. No one was loaded. So, you know, all the Aussies looked after one another. And, you know, because I'd played in some of the Australian professional events as an amateur, like a lot of the Aussie players knew who I was already and I'd played with some of them. And and then finishing second at the Australian Masters, they were just all going to look after me. And so that's sort of what happened. Like I never was without, you know, someone to drive in the car with or follow to the next tournament or anything like that. Is it fun being a professional golfer on tour? Oh, especially when you first start out. Yeah. You know, like I think about the things that would irritate me now, like if I did that exact schedule and travelled the same way I did mm. when I was 20, uh, you know, it would drive me nuts now. But I was just living my dream, you know. I was playing professional golf, like it didn't matter, you know, and – you know, we play in Evian, France one week and we drive to um, Zalemzee in Austria and, and we're there in the middle of June and we can go up to the glacier and snow ski and then play golf. Like it, it was just amazing. It was, you know, I was getting paid to do that. You went to America, first event, second? Uh, yes, first event, second. Second event, first? Yeah. I, I actually wrote it down. <laughs> People need to know this. 41... LPGA tour wins, seven majors, Australian tour, 13 wins, eight ladies' masters. Big greedy. <laughs> Five Australian opens, three wins in Japan, 15 on the European tour, plus four others. So you've won 76 golf tournaments. There's a couple of double It's a couple of double ups. So some of those are LPGA. Okay. Events, well, let's so. say early 70s then. <laughs> what does winning mean to you? And we'll get to some of the success you had in America, but what does winning mean? mean to you and what did it do to you and do for you? Um, well, I mean, that's the ultimate. That's why you put in the hours of practice and um, and I think because, you know, like I said, I, I had success in every level of golf that I played um, and I liked being the best. I liked, um, I liked winning. It was that's why I got up out of bed every day to, to work my butt off was because I loved the end result. Being the best, did it change you? Oh, I think I think it it had to change me. I don't think it changed me the deep down person that I am, but I think um, everything that comes along with it, I think, changes you a little bit. Um, In what way? You are just, you know, um, I was I was seriously a super shy kid. I, I watched. Um, I just did this Japanese. Um, lesson show last week and part of it they showed um, highlights from my first win on the LPGA, the second tournament I played, and and part of it was the interview at the end and, like, I'm not making eye contact with the person interviewing me. Like, I was really, really shy and, and also 
overawed by the whole situation. Um, so as my success continued and I got to be one of the best players on tour and then eventually the best player on tour, you know, there were criticisms and different stuff and, and, and even <clears throat> handling. About game or about you? No, just about me. Um, I, was, I was pretty guarded about the media before I even turned pro. I mean, I, I looked up to Greg Norman and every time he stepped foot in the country, they'd find something to bring him down for. Mm. Um, so I think growing up seeing that, I was already kind of guarded. Um, and then um, because I, I didn't smile until I was holding up a trophy, um, I didn't show lots of emotion. Um, and, the, and the LPGA had come off an era of Nancy Lopez and, and um, these players that, you know, <clears throat> said and did all the right things that I wasn't, uh, and Annika Sorensen got this as well, um, we weren't the right players to take the LPGA into the future. And, um, and then they found some players to back that, that theory up. Um, the right brand? No, to just what that. Report I, these days. Well, say that again. Well, these days. Oh, it's the right brand. Yeah, it's your performance, yeah. and there's your brand. Your, your your performance was obviously the right performance to take the tour for. Yeah, but I think these days you can have a brand that doesn't. You can be yourself, and that's yeah. your brand. Like they were asking me to be somebody else. Okay. Um, where I think, and I think Annika changed herself to to appease the media and. And it worked for her, but I just wasn't. I wasn't going to be over a fifteen footer on Thursday morning. Going well, if I make this, I have to remember to smile. Like I right. just wasn't going to do that. So at at your at your best when you're on the top of your game, there was. Um, be fair to say, people. And I still don't think people know a great deal about you for someone that's has much success. But be fair to say. And I say this with the greatest possible respect, a little wary around you. Were they wary around me? Yeah. Maybe, but I, it's maybe because I was wary around them. Yeah, yeah. okay. And and it wasn't so much when I was in Australia. It was a little bit, but it it was a it was a lot of the attack on me as a person that I wasn't, you know, the right person that and 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 in the US most Americans don't get sarcasm, proper pure sarcasm mm. that you say without a smile. Um, and, you know, if I if I was asked something that deserved a sarcastic comment, I would give it and that doesn't go over very – it would go – people would laugh yes. in the Australian media room. Yes. But, um, so I think I was taken – my personality was taken the wrong way to begin with and I didn't understand – I didn't understand that, that – that no one was getting my sarcasm. <laughs> so um, so I learned to say sarcasm with a smile and, and then all of a sudden... Away you go. Yeah, things turned around. You were incredibly driven though. At, at Like how driven were you when you were the best to, to stay at the best? Like how much yeah. work did you do? Like you always came across as a tremendously focused, driven athlete. Yeah, and I think that's probably where the media was wary too is that I chose not to do self-promotion if it interfered with my preparation to being the best. Which is fair enough. Yeah. But, you know, some people choose to try and do both to help that other side. And at the end of the day, I was like, I just want, 
my main goal was to, if you're going to be talking about me in 20 years' time, it's going to be how great I was as a golfer, not, you know, how many interviews I did mm. or, you know, how much you know about my, you know, what I what I do away from the golf course. Um, so, you know, that was part of it. But the the work was, you know, I just, I think I grew up watching my parents work really hard and I knew that, you know, being the best or maintaining and staying at the top just was going to be hard work. And it, and it was, it wasn't like my mum says that I made sacrifices throughout my life, but I'd never felt, it never felt like a sacrifice. That was what I had dreamt to do. And I wasn't, and I knew the opportunity that I had, you know, um, playing a professional sport as a woman and being able to make a living at it at that stage it was golf and tennis mm. were the, pretty much the only two that you could. And so I had this opportunity to live out my dream. I wasn't going to waste it by not working hard. It's quite a reflective discussion we're having at the moment and this is a question, not a statement. Would you do anything differently looking back as to the way you approached it? Like you look at statistically what I'm about to roll out, there's no way you'd change it. W- would you do anything differently or not? Um. Because I reckon you're sitting in a position now where you've probably got a bit more time to smell the roses. Yeah, yeah, But maybe you've only got to do that because you've got this incredible career behind you. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think if if I say that I would change something, it would be being incredibly picky. I don't, and I and if I changed it, it might it might not I might not have won any more tournaments. Exactly. But um, I think with golf, the dangerous thing about golf is that when you get to number one in the world and you're asked how are you going to stay number one or what are you working on to get better? And and because you're asked what are you working on to get better, it means, well, what am I improving? So sometimes why? Just maintain what you're doing, you know. But I started to be like, okay, well, to get better, I don't, I can't really hit a fade, so I want to hit a fade. So I changed my golf swing to hit a fade, which led to just different things that became less natural than what I was doing. Mm. Like I was a very natural player, not a lot of technique. So then when you start working on lots of technique, it takes that natural instinct away. Um, And possibly at that stage of my career, would I have been better off? Like I was a a great putter when I was hot, but I I was pretty hot and cold with my putting. Like could it have been better to work on my putting? But I was all about ball striking and how good it looked rather than just getting it in the hole. So those are the things that maybe I would have I would have changed, but I mean, could it would it have made a difference? Maybe not. Talking about putting, as you listen to the show, <laughs> you know my kids yes. ask questions. Yep. Straight home from school today. They're like, what time you seen Kari? <laughs> Tell them they said right out. <laughs> so you get uh, the big penguin. Yep. Who's now eight. Who doesn't mind going to the driving range? Okay, good. This is what he had to say. Hi, Carrie. We're Big Penguin here. I like going to the driving range and giving the big dog a big <laughs> whack. Woof. But I'm not a very good putter. It's frustrating. How do you putt so well? <laughs> I said, mate, that might take a three hours to answer. Yeah, right. But to an eight-year-old mind, what should he be doing? Well, he should try and get as much enjoyment out of seeing the ball go in the mm-hmm. hole as he does hitting it a long way. 
That's not where he's at at the moment. Yeah. He's a distance man. <laughs> yep, yep. He's a distance man. Yep. I was trying to explain to him yesterday, uh, drive for show, putt for dough, and he wasn't getting his head around that no. concept. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the ultimate goal is to see it go in the hole, so you've got to work just as hard on that as you do on your golf swing. I will let him know that. <laughs> That is the end of Kari Webb Part A. Don't worry, though, plenty more to come. In Part B, Kari reflects on exactly what toll the game of golf had on her at times. Listener.